As we get started this morning, I, I actually have uh, one announcement I missed. And I want to do me a favor. Make sure you mark this on your calendar, June 8th. June 8th. It's uh, a couple Sundays from today. And on that Sunday, we're going to be celebrating two things. First of all, as far as Overflow, which is our capital campaign to raise uh, our finances for our next steps, we're going to be crossing our first big hurdle. That's 100 grand. And that's going to be big, uh, an exciting goal that we've accomplished. And so we will be hitting that mark on June 8th. So we want to make sure you're here. Uh, we can celebrate that. And it's also Pastor Dan and Stacy's last Sunday here with us before they moved to Michigan. Uh, again, you know, I know some people have asked me questions about Dan's, um, his move and that, and uh, how it all came about. And all I can say is the same thing that was said to me 15 years ago. When God speaks, you listen. And when Dan came to me and shared with me that he felt God was calling him to resign and move, um, but he didn't know what he was going to do at that point in time, uh, I knew that was difficult for him and Stacy, but he's being obedient to God's voice. And um, you have to understand, and I'll share more on June 8th, that uh, it's not easy because he's one of the pastors that started this church. He's the one that came to me and said, Rex, you want to launch a church? Plan a church? And I was like, nope. <laughs> I was the one that said no, okay? But I said I'd pray about it. And then we prayed, and next thing you know, here we are, you know, eight years later. Um, and so Dan's been here from the start, very instrumental in many things, and very thankful for Dan. And so as Dan uh, pulls out of here in a couple weeks, I'd love for you all to be back on June 8th to show your appreciation to him and, um, to, you know, again, give God thanks for what's going on in this church. Um, we are a very blessed church, no doubt about it. Um, building, with that being said, building committee. For those of you that are here, part of the building committee, could you meet me after the service, please, for a very, very, very brief meeting. Just got to chat with you, okay? Um, if you have a family member, or if you yourself have served in our armed forces, would you please stand if you have served, or if you have a family member, immediate family member that served, would you please stand? I'm sort of curious. Awesome. All of you are directly affected by somebody who is serving or has served. And um, with that being said, this is what you're going to have a seat. Thank you. With that being said, um, thank you. This is Memorial Day weekend. This is a time in which we pay tribute and we say thank you to those who have served, those who have given their lives in, in various ways. A few years ago, we traveled uh, on vacation. And we stopped at uh, Gettysburg, Antietam, and a few other Civil War sites. And I've always been blown away by Gettysburg, by the Civil War. And maybe because it was family fighting family. I never understood that. Maybe that's why of all wars, that intrigues me the most. The number of casualties that we face in our nation from that war itself. And then we moved on to Washington, D.C., and we looked at the Vietnam Memorial and, and the wall with the names and found a, a name of someone we knew and, and um, the various monuments there in, in our nation's capital. is very intriguing, it's very humbling, and it's very quiet as people stand there and come there to remember those who have given their lives. 
And so for those of you who have served, those of you who are serving, those of you who have family members that have served or are served, thank you. We really do appreciate what you have done and what your family members have done. And I understand it's not an easy thing. I have a nephew that has made two tours to Iraq. Um, and, you know, we praise God that he's come back safely. Um, but we know that's not the same story for everyone. And uh, my father, father-in-law being one, if you don't know my father-in-law, you're lucky. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> I love my father-in-law. If you've ever seen the movie, um, oh, no, I can't remember, Meet the Parents. Uh, you know what I'm talking about, that movie, Meet the Parents, and he's going to get married, and he goes under the lie detector, everything. I always tell everybody, that's my father-in-law, okay? That's what I went through. As Jenny and I were dating, um, I was sitting there in the living room with him, and we were, he, always, he watches two shows, Cops and FBI's Most Wanted, okay? And uh, those are basically his shows, and, and he's sitting there in his easy boy chair. He always has a loaded pistol in the side there, and yeah, that freaks me out too. Um, but as we're sitting there watching, he said, I helped catch that guy. We were watching FBI's Most Wanted. I helped catch him. Yeah, sure you did. Yeah, whatever. No, I did. I helped catch that guy. Uh, yeah, I bet you did. And I was just sort of playing with him. He got up and left the room. And this was before I was engaged. So I looked at Jane and I'm going, I think I just made your dad upset. I felt bad. And he comes walk, walking back into the room. And he has this manila folder and he plops it on my lap. I'm like, you did help catch that guy. Okay. I knew I was in trouble from that point on. I was waiting for the lie detector test before uh, we got married. Um, but he had served uh, in the Green Beret in, in Vietnam, and uh, with the Special Forces unit that he was with, he went through a lot, and as he's come home, I know sometimes back in the middle school, the kids did uh, reports, and he would come in and do some of the reports of the kids in the school. Um, but through all of that, there's something that we don't miss now, and that's thanking him. Taking time to thank the men and women who have served in our nation. Because what they went through really changed him. He's a big teddy bear now. He was really rough when I first met him. He's a big teddy bear. That's what you know, 16 grandchildren will do to a man. Um, but I'm very thankful for him. I'm very thankful for those who have served. And uh, which takes me to this next monument, which is actually a living monument. And it stands in the Sequoia National Park. It's called the German, I'm sorry, the General Sherman Tree. And it's the largest tree by volume. Okay, not tallest, not wide, but by volume. It's named after the Civil War General William Tecumseh Sherman. And it's a, it's a living memorial to the men and women of the United States who gave their lives to serve in this country. And that's what's written on the plaque by this tree. And field measurements done in 1975 the General Sherman tree was determined, listen, to be 275 feet tall and 102 feet in circumference. That's a big tree. That's a big tree. Its size is incredible. <clears throat> and it's a living memorial to those who have served our nation. But let me tell you, there's even a taller tree. The redwoods are even taller. They can reach a height of up to 350 feet. And when you think of a 350 foot tall tree, think about how tall that is, okay? You have to think this, it's got to have some deep roots, right? Anything that tall better be secured at the bottom or it's going to blow over real quick. But here's the amazing thing is 
Redwood tree roots are very shallow. They go five or six feet deep. Now, if you think about this, if you look straight up 350 feet, that's the length of a football field beyond, and I'm six foot, and that's as long as, as deep as the roots go. And yet those redwood trees remain strong and tall. How can that happen? Let me tell you how it happens. Do me a favor. I'm going to need all of you to stand up. We're going to work together as a team. I'm going to ask you each to link arms with the person next to you and across the aisles. So if you could do that, and we're going to ask you this. You're going to have to you all after you shift this way because we got somebody on crutches over here and I don't want to make them move. So <coughs> you guys are right here. That's good. You link with this that direction. Okay. There we go. <coughs> Just want to see, okay, everybody's got arms linked? Okay, yep, right there, awesome. Okay, all the arms linked, because this, this is the way it works. A redwood tree, the only reason they remain standing tall and strong and don't fall over is because this is what happens right here. Their roots go out and extend out and intertwine with other roots from other trees, so much that they say they will even go out 100 feet from their base. So when strong winds come, when raging floods come, those shallow roots, if it was just straight down five or six feet, they're down. But because they're linked long and extended, they intertwine, those trees withstand things that come their way. Let me, let me listen real quick. It goes the same way with family. When you stand alone, it's hard. But when you link arms with people across and do this, it's easier to stand up as a family. Amen? Amen? Go ahead and have a seat. Thank you. The family is very similar to the redwood tree, and that's my point I'm trying to make. When a strong family thrives with its roots extended and intertwined, depending and connecting with the roots of another, that allows a family to withstand the storms that come their way. Some of you, you know, sometimes I know you feel alone and you're going in and it's like, I need somebody to pray for me. So you, you contact us and you think the people in the church, they'll pray for me. I'm not alone. That's right. You're just reaching your roots out a little bit further there. Some of you connect in community groups and you're part of a small group. Maybe you're part of East. Maybe you're part of the men's group. You're extending your roots and you're connecting. When you show up at youth group or GPS or GAP, guess what you're doing? You're extending your roots and you're intertwining. Too many people try to do this by themselves. It's difficult. So family is so important. But just as we, you know, these trees can be easily uprooted because maybe the soil isn't good or the roots didn't go deep or they didn't extend and intertwine with each other, we also have families that are easily uprooted. Let me, let me share something with you. You hear me say this verse all the time. John 10.10. 10. If you don't have it memorized by now, Stick around another two months, you'll have it memorized because I repeat it often. John 10.10 says, The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus says, But I've come to give life and give it abundantly. You need to know that you have an opponent, and that is not your spouse, that is not your mother-in-law or brother-in-law or father-in-law. It's not the person who lines up across from you in competition. It's not your boss that you're not getting along with or a co-worker. Your opponent is the devil. 
He's got one agenda for you. Now listen carefully. He wants to destroy your life. Kill, steal, and destroy. He wants to annihilate you. He does not care about you. But he comes simply disguised as an angel of light thinking, I'm just here to make you happy, pleasurable, find peace this way. But what we find out is often it's a trap, it's a lie. Because he's got one agenda, and that's to destroy. And Jesus said, I've come to give life and give it abundantly. So if you can understand this, and I can understand this, that here is truth, you have an opponent that wants to destroy you. And one of the best ways to destroy you is to destroy your family. The bigger the family you have, the larger the target you have on your back. I want you to think about the way things are in this world when it comes to different subjects. We've talked about this in church before, uh, but abortion, abuse. I want you to think about how divorce and disruption in the family. I want you to think about how uh, homosexual marriage uh, is disruptive to the family. I want you to think about all these factors today that we struggle with. We didn't ask for them. Sometimes they just come our way. Some things are bad choices. If you look on TV today in entertainment, the family's being destroyed. They make families look like goofballs. If you're an intact family that gets together, you're the oddball on TV. You're made to feel odd. Hollywood's doing a great job of destroying family. Why is that? Because the thief wants to steal, kill, and destroy. So families, if you're in here today and you're like, you know, we really have our moments at home. We really do. And I, I had somebody tell me, uh, I was doing some, some counseling with the family, and they said, they, they just don't think you understand, Rex, because they think you have a perfect family. And I just busted a gut laughing. <laughs> it's like, you think we're perfect? Really? Well, maybe we, we, maybe we hide it really well, okay? Oh, but if, if the windows are open on a summer day and you live next door, you'll find out that the stump house is not perfect, okay? That's just the way we are. As we continue in our series, Facing Defeat Victoriously, we're going to see how God helps us live victoriously when family friction is at its worst. Okay? Listen, I hope you all had a good childhood. I really do. But I understand that all of us did. I'm sure we've all had our times, our moments, our arguments, our fights, our emergencies, or a point in time when we wanted to pack our bags and run away. I'm just sort of curious. Uh, no kids can answer this question, okay? No kids can answer this question, okay? So adults only. Adults, did you ever have a time in your life when you're like, I'm packing myself up and I'm running away? Raise your hand. I want to see. Look at that. Wow, we've all been there. Okay. It's amazing. I did the same thing. I packed my bag up, and this was, of course, this is when I was, I was younger. Younger, okay? And, and I had an appetite at that age, okay? And so my bag was mostly filled with food, Okay? It was sort of heavy. I didn't get too very far down the lane. Yeah, it was sort of funny. I, I got down to the end of the lane, and we had a long lane down our farm. And I got down to the end of the lane, and I was already tired. I was thinking, man, too many peanut butter sandwiches in here. I don't know if I can make it. And then, I'm, okay, here's the other thing. You live out in the country. Where do you go when you're running away? I mean, your closest neighbor is a half a mile away. We had woods, and my brother and I had built a teepee out of logs back in the woods, so that's, that was my destination. Go to the woods, live in the teepee, I'll show my parents. Run away, right? Running away is not the answer. 
you know, I don't know if my parents knew about it, but now that I'm a parent, I'm guessing my parents knew about it. Um, I didn't go far. Um, learned my lesson. Found out running away is not the answer. Not the answer. For the most part, I look back on my family life, I am very blessed. I had a very good childhood. Like I said, not a lot of people had good childhoods. But hopefully your childhood is, was, was happy and healthy and uh, opposed to the problem and pain-filled life. And please know, if you grew up with a pain-filled past, you're not alone. If you have problems in your family right now, you're not alone. Open up your Bibles, would you please, to the book of Genesis. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll bring one to you. You guys need Bibles? You know what? You can be my helpers. Let's see if anybody else needs one. Okay, why don't you guys go back and grab them right on the back table. Thank you. Team effort. There we go. Genesis. We're turning to the book of Genesis, chapter 41. Genesis, chapter 41. As you're turning to the book of Genesis, we've been going through the life of Joseph. And uh, we're going to, you know, Joseph's childhood, you think what he went through, he was pretty favored, right? And um, although he was favored, it wasn't a pretty childhood. He didn't deserve what he got from his brothers. Abuse, abandoned, sold into slavery, all that came to him. He didn't raise his hand and say, this is what I want in my childhood. He didn't deserve what he got from his brothers, but of course, Joseph didn't help the matter with his bragging, with his favoritism. He sort of put you know, a little fuel on the fire. And I'm sure he didn't mean to say anything, but sometimes, I know this is going to be shocking, but sometimes our mouths get us in trouble, don't they? Let's use the first thing at home that gets us in trouble. But it didn't begin with Joseph, it began with Jacob. That is Joseph's father. Now listen carefully. I'm going to tell you what he did and what he did not do, just in a nutshell. There's so much more to talk about Jacob, but that's not the focus of the story. First of all, you need to know this. Jacob married a woman that he didn't love so that he could marry the woman that he did love. What? Yeah. Yeah, it happened. He married a woman that he didn't love so that he could marry the woman that he did love. So he's married to two women. He's already in trouble, okay? Right? Now, to make it worse, his wives were sisters. Wow. Extra worse, right? Okay, now don't even try to figure that one out because I want to tell you this. The Bible is full of stories that makes us think and realize that our God is a gracious God. The Bible is not about perfect people. A lot of us think, well, in the Bible, this, how could God allow this? The Bible is not about perfect people, but about how People are revealed the perfect love of God. It's not about perfect people, but it's about the perfect love of God being revealed to people that need it in spite of their sin and troubles. Jacob wanted to have a child from his second wife, the one that he really loved, but that didn't happen. His first wife gave him sons, okay? But not his second wife. So with the help of other concubines and handmaids, he had a few more. Now Rachel, then his second wife, finally, eventually gave birth to Joseph and later gave birth to Benjamin and she died in the process of giving birth to Benjamin. So now he lost the wife he loved. He's got all these children. And he's got these two special ones from Rachel that he really loves. And we read about this family and sort of wonder because there's not a lot of information there 
but we don't hear anything about leadership. We don't hear anything about discipline. We don't hear anything about any kind of family order here with Jacob and his family after all that takes place. It seems to be missing. We're not sure why it isn't said there, but what we understand is there seems to be a lack of responsibility on Jacob's part in being the man of the house and raising these boys. So, that's a, just a brief background as maybe why the childhood was the way the childhood was. Maybe that's why. Now let's fast forward in time. We've gone through many chapters of already of Joseph's life. Let's go to chapter 41, verse 37. Let's begin to read there. Joseph's suggestions were well received by Pharaoh and his officials. This is after Pharaoh, and let me back it up here. This is where Pharaoh said, I can't get my dream interpreted by anybody. They bring Joseph in. Joseph interprets the dreams. So now this is Pharaoh's response. Verse 38. Pharaoh asked his officials, can we find anyone else like this man so obviously filled with the Spirit of God? Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has revealed the meaning of dreams to you, clearly no one else is as intelligent or as wise as you are. You will be in charge of my court. Listen to this. And all my people will take orders from you. Only I, sitting on the throne, will have a higher rank than yours. Three comments made there about a higher ranking. Verse 41. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby then give it you entire charge of the whole land. A fourth statement about now his position of power. Verse 42. Pharaoh removed his signet ring from his hand, placed it on Joseph's finger. Dressed him in fine linen clothing, hung a gold chain around his neck. Then he had Joseph ride in a chariot reserved for his second in command. Wherever Joseph went, the command was shouted, Kneel down. Let me hear you all say, Kneel down. One more time. Can you imagine that? Here comes Joseph all of a sudden. Everybody's saying, Kneel down, and boom, everybody's dropping to a knee. So Pharaoh put Joseph in charge of all of Egypt, and Pharaoh said to him, I am Pharaoh. No one will lift a hand or foot in the entire land of Egypt without your approval. Now, why did I take my time reading through that and point all that out? Because the first few chapters we read on the life of Joseph was abuse, abandonment, prison, false accusations, more prison. Now look where he's at. He's got the power. Now, today... If you ask a coach, if you ask anybody in society, how do you know that a man's become a man? How do you know that a man has, has you know, reached success? And they're going to say, he's got power, he's got money, and he's got a girl. And that's by today's judgment of how a man is successful. When you look at this, he's got jewelry, he's got the clothes, he's got the car, Disguised as a chariot, of course, okay? But he's got it all. He's got the power. He steps into the room and people are saying, kneel down, and boom, they're hitting, hitting the floor. He is the man, according to worldly standards, right? But we know there's more to this man, Joseph, because God was in, working in his life. But after Joseph gained power, he still chose to do this, leave his family and his past in the past. 
He left his family and his rotten past as a childhood in the past. He's in a new stage of life. He's got it good. You know what he could have done with all that power? He could have easily assembled an army and got them together and settled a score with his brothers. He had the means. He had the power. He could have said, gentlemen, get some chariots. I'm going to give you the address. Go wipe it clean. But he didn't. He left his family in the past in the past. However, restoration matters to God. Repeat after me. Restoration. One more time. Restoration matters to God. It's a key thing to remember. Restoration, bringing relationships back, that really matters to God. God's in the business of taking care of family restoration. Let's continue to read chapter 41. During this time, before the first of the famine years, two sons were born to Joseph and his wife. Ashenath, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of An, Joseph named his older son Manasseh. Listen to this. This is crazy. Okay, you all, I don't know how you all pick names for your kids. Carter asked me that the other day. He's like, Dad, how'd you come up with my name? I said, I don't know. Your mom did. Whatever mom says, that's what we went with. You know, I wanted Forrest, but she didn't like Forrest Stone. She had something about it. She didn't like it. So we stayed with Carter. So anyway, Carter's like, really? How did you come up? I said, I, I really don't know. Mom picked it. I liked it. We looked it up. It looked good, okay? But listen to how Joseph names his son, Manasseh. You know what that means? God made me forget all my trouble and everyone in my father's family. That's a great name. So every time he called out his son's name is, man, God made me forget my family. God made me forget all them. I don't know if Manasseh really liked his name or not, but it really wasn't a great name. His second son he named differently. He named his second son Ephraim, which is, God has made me fruitful in the land of my grief. God makes me forget. God blesses me. You, you wonder if there was any favoritism showed with those kids? I hope not. But when he looks at his one son, it's like, yeah, I, my family, they're gone. Man, God blesses me. I'm sure he looked at him differently, but why would he name him like that? He is still holding on to his family grief and friction. Let's read on, verse 53. At last, the seven years of bumper crops throughout the land of Egypt came to an end. Seven years of famine began, but Joseph, just as Joseph predicted. The famine also struck all the surrounding countries, but throughout Egypt there was plenty of food. So what happens here is those seven years that he dreamed about, that he predicted, came true. Great years of crops. That was followed by seven years of famine. Now everybody's getting hungry. What are we going to do? People cried out. Severe famine everywhere. People are coming from all over to buy food. Look at chapter 42. When Jacob heard that grain was available in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why are you standing around looking at one another? I've heard there's grain in Egypt. Go down there, buy grain to keep us alive. Otherwise, we'll die. So Joseph's ten older brothers went down to Egypt to buy grain. But Jacob wouldn't let Joseph's younger brother, Benjamin, go with them for fear something might happen to him. It happened once already to Joseph, right? He lost his favorite son, Joseph. It's not going to happen to Benjamin. Rachel gave me two sons. One's gone. I'm not losing Benjamin. You two boys, ten boys, get down there. Give me some grain. Benjamin's staying here. I know last time it happened. It's not going to happen again. Verse 5. 
So Jacob's sons arrived in Egypt along with the others to buy food, for the famine was in Canaan as well. Since Joseph was governor of all Egypt in charge of selling the grain to all the people, it was to him that his brothers came. Dun, dun, dun. I want to hear all the kids. You're going to do that with me, okay? That dun, dun, dun. Ready? One, two, three. Dun, dun, dun. Yes, good. I got some good help from right here. I need some more help from over here from the kids. Let's try it one more time. One, two, three. Yeah, that's, that's dramatic. Good. Okay, let's read on. Okay. When they arrived, they bowed before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph recognized his brothers instantly, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where are you from, he demanded. Oh, he knew, right? From the land of Canaan, they replied, we've come to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they didn't recognize him. Mm. Joseph's first encounter with the past started to dig up some stuff. I want you to think about this. You haven't seen your brothers for over 12 years, possibly 15 years now. Actually, it's more than that. It's close to 20 years. And in that 20-year span, it's like, I'm sure you thought about what your brothers did to you, the hurt, the pain. And now they are kneeling before you. Hmm. They're holding out coins to pay for food. The last time he saw coins in the hands of his brothers was what? When they sold him into slavery. Oh, I'm sure that brought back some memories, seeing the coins in their hands. He used a translator, spoke roughly to his family. He recognized their dialect, their voices. I'm sure they changed in their appearance now, a lot older, some gray hairs going on and other things. But Joseph, on the other hand, shaved. Probably had some, some eyeliner on, wore a black wig, looked differently, spoke a new language. His brothers never imagined that this would be Joseph. They had no clue. So Joseph did to them what they did to him. His family failed him. He was finished with them, but God wasn't. But God wasn't. Now listen very carefully to this. There's a gentleman by the name of Joe Werman. A few years ago, Parade Magazine said he was the most influential coach in the United States. Joe Werman. He had played for Baltimore in the NFL for many years. And when he was done, he now became a coach, psychologist, teacher, author, so forth and so on. Here's this huge offensive lineman that when he speaks and writes, you have to say, can I rewind it? Because I didn't catch it the first time you said it. And you listen carefully and hear him talk again. And he shares about the abuse that he went through as a child and how many coaches are transactional coaches, not transformational coaches. Let me define that. Transactional means it's all about the wins and losses. I don't care what I do to you. Whatever I can get out of you as an athlete, I will do it. I don't care if I hurt you. We will win as a team transformational coach is, I want to win, but it's more about raising up young boys and girls to be men and women, to make sure that they are of great, great standard and character. It's two different kinds of ways to coach. Jorman said, I grew up with both of those, and I leaned towards this one because I got hurt a lot. This is the way we need to do it. And so that's what he is now doing. But he wrote in his book, as he said this, being hurt, he said this, hurt people hurt people. Listen care for that statement. Hurt people hurt people. 
If you've been hurt in your life, guess what the possibilities are now? The possibility is that you're probably going to hurt somebody else because you've been hurt. Until you've dealt with that pain, until you've healed, you will turn around and probably hurt somebody else. And that statement that he made made a lot of sense. And I look at Joseph here, and Joseph had been hurt. And now look what he's about ready to do. He's about ready to hurt his family. Listen, I, I don't know what your family history is like. I don't know if it's been good or bad. I don't know if it was a, you've had a great family, but all of a sudden now you're going through some rough times. Wherever you are at in your family situation, I'm going to say this. Your history does not have to be your future. Remember what I said about God? He's in the business of rest restoration. Your history does not have to be your future. You don't have to pass on that kind of ancestry to your kids and grandkids. Take it to God. Take it to God. Let God help you through it. And I know that sounds so cliche-like, right? You know, Just take it to God. Take it to God. You know, family pain is probably the worst pain of all because it starts early and it deals with people you're supposed to trust, right? And maybe that's why family pain hurts the most. You probably and possibly could have been mistreated because you were too young to defend yourself. You might now be asking, how do I handle conflict and pain in my family right now? Joseph isn't quite sure how to handle this situation. What? Kids, I need you again. Ready? The dun dun dun. On the count of three. Ready? One, two, three. How come it's just you guys, right? Did I get anything from you? You did? Okay, good. Girls, did I hear anything from you? You, you didn't? Yes and no. Okay. Okay. All right. Because here's the deal Joseph isn't quite sure how to handle this situation. Ready? There you go. There you go. Okay. He handled the famine. He took care of Mrs. Potiphar. He handled that situation well. He ran, right? He handled all of Pharaoh's assignments, but when it came to his brothers in front of him, he didn't handle that too well. The family situation changed on him, and maybe we don't do it either. Look at chapter 42, verse 9. Let's pick it up from there. He said to them, you're spies. Oh, hurt people, hurt people. Here it comes. You've come to see how vulnerable our land has become. No, my lord, they exclaimed. Your servants have simply come to buy food. We're all brothers, members of the same family. We're honest men, sir. We're not spies. Yes, you are, Joseph insisted. You've come to see how vulnerable our land has become. Sir, they said, there are actually 12 of us. We, your servants, are all brothers, sons of a man living in the land of Canaan. Our youngest brother is back there with our father right now. One of our brothers is no longer with us, but Joseph insisted. As I said, you're spies. This is how I'll test your story. I swear by the life of Pharaoh that you'll never leave Egypt unless your youngest brother comes here. One of you must go get your brother. I'll keep the rest of you here in prison. Then we'll find out whether or not your story is true. By the life of Pharaoh, if it turns out you don't have a younger brother, then I'll know your spies. Listen, verse 17. So he put them in prison for three days. Hurt people, hurt people. He didn't know how to handle the situation except the same way he handled it when his was reversed. Put in prison. I'll teach my brothers. I'll put them in prison. Joseph tossed him in prison, just like he was, gave him a taste of their own medicine, right? But here's the thing. God's working, continuing to work in the heart of Joseph, the one who had been wronged. 
And that's where it's got to start. It begins with God asking God to transform you into a new person. So this is what I'm going to ask of you this morning. If you're dealing with a family situation right now, maybe something happened in the past and you haven't had to deal with it, but every now and then it rears its ugly head, or maybe right now you've got family issues going on, this is what I'm going to ask of you right now. Ask God to start transforming you first. Then pray for the other family members. Romans 12, 2 says this. Don't copy the behaviors and the customs of this world. What, what is this world like? An eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. Man, it's revenge. I'll get you back. Don't copy the behaviors and the customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Ask God to transform you by the way you think. Transformation takes time, process is long, probably difficult, but it's a first step. We're not here to solve this all today in one step, or five steps, I'm sorry. It's got to start with one, and that is God wants to restore relationships, so let's start with us being transformed first. It's a difficult step, but it's a must. We can read this story in 30 minutes, but you have to understand this actually lasted over a year. Joseph's healing process was not overnight. He sent them home, but he kept one of them as a guarantee to return. I'm going to keep one of you in prison, the others go. And it took a while until they got home. They took the grain with them. And this is what I want you to hear. Let's read this. Verse 19. If you're really honest men, choose one of your brothers to remain in prison. The rest of you may go home with grain for your starving families, but you must bring your youngest brother back to me. This will prove that you're telling the truth and you will not die. To this they agreed. Speaking among themselves, they said clearly. Now listen, speaking to themselves means speaking in their dialect, their language. Remember, they think Joseph doesn't understand because he speaks a different language, right? But remember, he knows the language. Clearly, we're being punished because of what we did to Joseph long ago. We saw his anguish when we pleaded for his life, but we wouldn't listen. That's why we're in this trouble. They're among themselves right now, and they're like, this is our fault, guys. Remember what we did to Joseph, our own brother? We saw the anguish on his face. We saw the pain, and we hurt our family. This is why this trouble's upon us. Joseph hears the whole thing. Joseph has to turn his face because he begins to weep. He never wept when he was in prison, prison that we can read of. When he was promoted, when he was falsely accused, we never read about Joseph crying. But now he is. When he learned that his brothers had not forgotten him, he cried. I'm going to name my son. God made me forget, right? And now his brothers are before him. They did not forget. And it hits them. Maybe there is hope for my family. Recognize pain. Admit it. Seek help. A lot of times I do uh, marital counseling, and part of the marital counseling that I do when I get couples together and sort of went through this uh, just the other day, and that is resolving conflict, learning to say, I'm sorry, learning to seek forgiveness, learning to forget, forgive others. We've got to learn to do that. Conflict will happen. Families will fight. Spouses will argue. But the resolving the conflict is in the process for everyone. If you're the one that's been offended, guess what? Admit it. I've been hurt. Don't tell that person that hurt you like, oh, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. It was a big deal. It hurt. They need to know. 
You need to let them know. Examine that offense that happened to you. Find out whether or not maybe you were part of it. Maybe that's why. Examine your heart. Do you, are, do you want to retaliate now? Or do you want to seek peace now? As the one being offended, you have a choice as to what you can do. But you lovingly confront them. You see the circumstances that are going around and you confront them with carefully with the right words. Your goal should be to restore oneness in that relationship. And if you're the one that offended somebody else, you have a similar responsibility. You need to seek forgiveness. You need to come out and say, I'm sorry that I did this and name it. And tell them. You need to get it right with God. Galatians 6, 1, Paul says this, Brothers, somebody's caught in a sin. You who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself so you also may be tempted. Paul says, listen, you've got conflict going on in relationships. Restore it. But when you restore those relationships, do it gently. If you've ever had a broken bone or dislocation, I know what you see on Hollywood. You see these guys, oh, my, my shoulder's out of place. I'm just going to throw my shoulder, my whole body into a wall and, you know, boom, pop that shoulder back into place, right? Because that's what they do, right? When Carter dislocated his elbow many years ago, and we're sitting in the doctor's office, and they, they, they're ready to put his elbow back into place, the doctor looked at us and said, this is the part where you two may want to leave if you don't want to see what's about ready to happen. So Jenny's like, I'm out of here. And she stepped out of the room. I said, I want to see this. So they'd given him a little pain shot to prepare him, and then the doctor took Carter's elbow, and he did this. He took it, and he went, bam. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, what he did was... He took his elbow, just keeping you alert and awake, okay? He took his elbow and he just, just sort of just looked like he was massaging it. He sort of took his arm and pulled it around. And he said, okay. I said, okay, what? You ready to smack it? Like, no, I'm done. It's in place. You did that so soft, so gentle. And it's like, yeah, it was just like that. That's what Paul's talking about in Galatians 6.1 when he says, to restore him gently, it's a doctor resetting a bone. It's a doctor putting something that's dislocated back into location. It's done gently. It's not, my family and I are fighting right now, so I'm going to fight fire with fire. No, 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 no. Restoring is like setting a broken bone. Be the one to ask for forgiveness. Be the one to seek forgiveness. Build that trust. I want to close with this story real quick. A story that I heard and it makes a lot of sense to me and, and pray and hope that this story makes sense to you. Worship team, would you please come forward? I read this story about a young woman who complained about her family. She said, my family is so... Uh, she didn't have words for it. She's frustrated with her family, with the relationships that she had. She's sharing this with one of her friends. The adversity was so much, she just wanted to give up. So she got her friends again. I'm going to need this. I'm going to need to help with some of the kids. Okay? So kids listened very carefully. Okay? So this is what she did. Her friend got together three pots, filled them with water, put them on the stove, got them all boiling. Then she took some carrot slices, and she sliced carrots into one of the pots. And then she got some eggs and put them into the other pot. And then into the third pot, she put some some ground coffee beans into the third pot. So all three pots, boiling water, different things in each pot. Okay? Now, she let them simmer for a few minutes, and then she took the carrots out of the boiling water, put them on the plate. Took the eggs out of the water, put them on the plate. 
took the coffee out of the water, put it in the mug, and placed it before a friend. And she said this. She said, I want you to fill each of those. Okay, let's start with the carrots. Fill the carrots. So I'm going to ask one of the kids, you tell me, the carrots have been cooking in this boiling water. What do you think the carrots felt like? Why don't you raise your hand and tell me, what do you think the carrots, what do you think they felt like? Squishy? Perfect. They were squishy. And then she went to the second plate and picked up an egg, broke the egg open. What do you think? Remember, thin exterior, liquidy on the inside, but it's been in the boiling water. Now it's out. What do you think that egg is like? Who wants to help me on the next one? What do you think that egg felt like when, when she touched it? Slimy on the outside, but was it, was it liquidy and squishy, or was it hard now? Yeah, it was hard. Yep. And then the third thing she did was she grabbed that coffee mug. And she said, take a sip of that. And she had a little smile on her face, and she tasted its rich flavor. So, okay, great. <laughs> what does it mean? You know, the carrots and the egg and the coffee. What does that all mean? And her friend said this to her. Each of the ingredients was subjected to the same thing, boiling water. But each of them reacted differently. The carrots, they went in hard. But after they were in the boiling water for a while, they became soft. The, the egg was fragile, with a thin outer shell, liquid interior, but it came out hardened. Now the coffee, ground coffee, changed a little bit. It changed the water for the better. And then she looked at her friend and said this, which one are you? Which one are you? When you face adversity, how do you respond? When you face conflict in your family, how do you respond? Families can be filled with adversity, no doubt about it. We can be squashed by what's going on in our family, or we can allow it to make us hard, or we can make the best of it and improve the situation. We all face adversity. Why not allow God to transform us to make the situation better, as with Joseph? Joseph didn't have to send his brothers home. He didn't have to give them grain, but he did those things. It was a small act, and it was the beginning of bringing that family back together. You'll hear more about that story later, but it starts with a small act of transformation. Amen? Would you all please stand? Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for this day you've given us. I thank you for this moment you've given us. I thank you for family. I know our families aren't perfect. And some of us are dealing with some family friction right now and trying to figure out how to handle it. And Lord, we're going to handle it like this. We're going to ask for just a small act on our part to begin with and a whole lot of you. As we face adversity, Lord, we don't want to mess it up. We don't want to become hardened by it, but we want to see the situation improve. So, Lord, we ask for a transformation process to take place in our hearts. It begins with us, for us to ask for forgiveness, for us to seek for forgiveness, for us to have a small act of love to bring back some restoration because it matters to you, so it should matter to us. Lord, as we close this time of worship as we sing. Lord, we ask that your spirit just move in our heart. Bring to mind somebody that maybe we're not getting along with right now. And help us, Lord, to know how to approach them and to find healing in that situation. 
Thy name we pray. Amen.